Suddenly, my stomach tightens up. There's a choking in my throat and my torture begins. The bad thoughts come. I want to drive them out, but they keep coming back. It is terrible to be in a struggle like this, to have a head that goes around and around without my being able to stop it, to be a madman and still quite rational for all that. I am double. At the very time that I am trying to plan what I want to do, another unwanted thought is in my mind, distracting me and always hindering me from doing what I want to do. That's a quote from a scrupulous client in Albert Barbest's Scrupulosity in the Present Data of Psychiatry. It's in Theology Digest. Another quote from someone struggling from scrupulosity. My confessions were bad. My confessor does not understand me. He is mistaken in me, not believing that I could be so wicked. I have never had contrition. I'm constantly committing sins against faith, against purity. I blaspheme interiorly. I rashly judge even priests. And the more often I receive Holy Communion, the worse I become. And I've got some of my own quotes because when I turned 19 years old, I, myself, had a terrible bout with scrupulosity. It was all around sexuality. I had just started dating the first woman that I might consider marrying. And there was all kinds of things coming up in me, all kinds of obsessions, all kinds of torturous thoughts that wouldn't leave me alone, all kinds of things about physical touch, how much romantic contact was okay, how far was too far. And there were thoughts of sex with her that plagued me. Do I break up with her? How do I handle this? Was this sinful? Was it not? Was I on the road to hell? Was I putting her on the road to hell? Who could I talk with this about? Would it bring any relief? What was I supposed to do? Who could I talk to? It just went round and round and round and round in a really dizzying kind of way that just was torturous. And that was my experience of scrupulosity. Today, if you haven't already done so, I would encourage you to review the last episode, episode 86, Obsessions, Compulsions, OCD, and IFS. That episode went deep into obsessions and compulsions, and it really serves as a basis for today's episode. Today's episode, number 87, is entitled Scrupulosity, When OCD Gets Religion. It's released on December 6th, 2021, St. Nick's Day, and I am Dr. Peter Malinowski, clinical psychologist, passionate Catholic, and together we are taking on the tough topics that matter to you. Here on this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, we bring the best of psychology and human formation, and we harmonize it with the perennial truths of the Catholic faith. Interior Integration for Catholics, this podcast, is part of our broader outreach at Souls and Hearts, where we bring the best of psychology to you, to the whole world, grounded in a Catholic worldview. Interior Integration for Catholics is part of our broader outreach, Souls and Hearts at soulsandhearts.com, where we bring the best of psychology grounded in a Catholic worldview to you and the rest of the world. That's all through our website, soulsandhearts.com. Check that out. 
Okay, so today we're going to start out with definitions of scrupulosity from both the spiritual and secular sources. We really want to wrap our minds around what scrupulosity is. And then we're going to discuss the, the connection between scrupulosity and OCD. That's why we set the stage in the last episode all about OCD. Now we're talking about scrupulosity. We define it and then we move on to what are the signs of scrupulosity? How can one tell when one is being scrupulous? From there, we're going to move on to the internal experience of scrupulosity. What is it like to experience intense scruples? You had a little bit of a taste in the introduction, but we're going to get much more into that. And then we're going to discuss what religious and secular experts have to say about the causes of scrupulosity. And then we're going to get into what religious and secular experts have to say about the treatment of scrupulosity. What's the most recommended therapy approach? What alternative approaches might be interesting? And after we've discussed the conventional secular and spiritual approaches to treating scrupulosity, I'm going to show you how I think about scrupulosity, how I think about the root causes of scrupulosity, how I think scrupulosity develops, and how it can be addressed. I'm going to give you an alternate view, very different than the typical views out there, and, and very grounded in a Catholic understanding of the human person. Also, that view is informed by internal family systems thinking. All right, so those of you that have listened to this podcast, those of you that have been with me, and many of you have been, I really appreciate that. You know how important definitions are to me. We want to make sure we really understand what we're talking about. So let's define scrupulosity. Scruple comes from the Latin word scrupulum. And what that means is a small, sharp stone. It's an ancient Roman measure of weight that's equivalent to 1 24th of an ounce or about 1.3 grams, really small. So this scrupulum is something tiny, but something that can cause a lot of discomfort. So this is from Father William Doyle, who was a Jesuit priest writing in 1897. He said, quote, scrupulosity in general is an ill-founded fear of committing sin, end quote. Father Hugh O'Donnell, writing in the first part of the 20th century, said that scrupulosity may be defined as a habitual state of mind that, because of an unreasonable fear of sin, inclines a person to judge certain thoughts or actions as sinful when they aren't, or that they are more gravely wrong than they really are. Scrupulosity involves an emotional condition that interferes with the proper working of the mind and produces a judgment not in accordance with objective truth, but with the emotion of fear. So Father Hugh O'Donnell is emphasizing the importance of fear. Father James Jackson, in an article on scrupulosity that's much more recent, says that, quote, scrupulosity is an emotional condition, an ultra-sensitivity to sin, which produces excessive anxiety and fear from the thought of eternal damnation. The condition is a religious, moral, and psychological state of anxiety, fear, and indecision. It is coupled with extreme guilt, depression, and fear of punishment from God. However, each person who suffers from it does so uniquely, end quote. And I like that definition because it's, it's starting to get more, uh, more specific, this ultra-sensitivity to sin, and brings in the anxiety, the fear, and also this question of eternal damnation. That's very, very important. 
It also discusses the guilt and depression and the fear of punishment of God. Father Mark Foley has this description of scrupulosity. He's a Carmelite. He wrote a book called The Context of Holiness, Psychological and Spiritual Reflections on the Life of St. Teresa of Lisieux. Now, that book is excellent. It's a very psychologically informed study of the little flower. It's not only the best psychological profile of St. Teresa of Lisieux that I have ever read, but it's the best psychobiography of any saint from any author I've read. This book, The Context of Holiness, Psychological and Spiritual Reflections on the Life of St. Teresa of Lisieux, is a very in-depth look at the life of St. Therese, at her development, and at all of the sort of psychological factors that played into who she was. It also takes a really in-depth look at her mother, St. Zelie Martin, as well as the limitations and the lack of attunement in the Martin family. So this is highly recommended reading. If you're interested in really understanding a saint from a psychological perspective, I can't think of a better book. Now, all of chapter 12 of this book is on the little flower's scrupulosity, a whole chapter devoted to that. And in that chapter, Father Mark Foley describes scrupulosity as follows, quote, scrupulosity is an extremely painful anxiety disorder. It consists of an annoying fear that one has offended God or could offend God at any moment and that God will cast her into hell. To protect yourself from eternal damnation, the scrupulous person dissects every thought, motive, and action in order to ascertain if she has sinned. And since she is deathly afraid that she might have sinned, the scrupulous person seeks absolute certitude that she hasn't sinned in order to assuage her fears. Okay, so again, it's really important that we understand that the stakes are really high. This is about damnation. This is about hell. This is about whether or not we're acceptable to God. Let's turn to some definitions from more secular sources. So this is from Timothy Sizemore, Catherine Barton, and Mary Keeley uh, in in their presentation on scrupulosity. They describe scrupulosity as, quote, a sin phobia, end quote. Jamie Eckert, who is a scrupulosity coach on the internet, described scrupulosity as where faith and OCD collide. So she's bringing in the idea that scrupulosity is essentially a subcategory of OCD, one where there is religious or faith content. And the International OCD Foundation fact sheet, which is called What is Scrupulosity?, defines scrupulosity as follows. A form of obsessive-compulsive disorder involving religious or moral obsessions. Scrupulous individuals are overly concerned that something they thought or did might be a sin or other violation of religious or moral doctrine. Okay. So now we're going to talk about bridging the secular and the spiritual. And if there's one book that's most cited in Catholic circles, it's Joseph Chiarochi's Doubting Disease, Help for Scrupulosity and Religious Compulsions. This was published in 1995. It is still the most cited texts in Catholic circles, even more than a quarter century later. Dr. Chiarochi is a former Catholic priest. He was trained as a clinical psychologist, and he served as a professor and chairman of pastoral counseling at Loyola University in Maryland until his death in 2010. 
He says that, quote, scrupulosity refers to seeing sin where there is none, end quote. And he also viewed scrupulosity as a subset of obsessive compulsive disorder, basically a kind of religious OCD. He distinguishes between two types of scrupulosity, developmental scrupulosity and emotional scrupulosity. Developmental scrupulosity often occurs in adolescence. It might happen shortly after a conversion experience, and it's temporary. It usually disappears. So when I went back to my experience of scrupulosity at age 19, that's what he would call developmental scrupulosity because that period of scrupulosity lasted about seven to 10 days. It was just a little over a week, a really intense week, a really difficult week, but it was contained within a relatively narrow time period. Emotional scrupulosity is a much more enduring condition. It can vary in intensity over time from being overwhelming at certain points to being just mildly irritating at other times, and it can last for decades. The core experience of scrupulosity, according to Joseph Girochi, is quote, an intrusive idea often associated with a sinful impulse which the person abhors but cannot shake, end quote. So that's the definitions. What are the signs of scrupulosity? What do we see in scrupulous people? Well, it's so interesting because Father Thomas Santa, the past director of Scrupulous Anonymous and the author of the book Understanding Scrupulosity, he says, there's a lot we don't see. Quote, when people struggle with the scrupulous disorder, most of the suffering, fear, and anxiety they experience happens in isolation. Scrupulosity is mostly an interior struggle, seldom manifesting itself with easily identifiable or observable mannerisms or behaviors. You can't tell if people are scrupulous by looking at them. While some compulsions of obsessive compulsive disorder are identifiable, most of the suffering associated with the disorder is personal. Only the sufferer fully knows its debilitating nature. End quote. So basically, what Father Santa is telling us is that, hey, you won't know just by looking at somebody if they're suffering from scrupulosity. A lot of that is really internal. And that was my experience when I was 19. I wasn't telling anybody about this. I wasn't going to talk to anybody about this. My parents didn't know. I didn't share it with hardly anybody. Uh, I did talk about it with a confessor eventually. And I also did talk about it with my girlfriend at the time. But the first week of that, I wasn't saying anything to anybody. All right. So now we're going to talk about the signs of scrupulosity. What is it like? And I'm using four main sources here. The International OCD Foundation Fact Sheet on Scrupulosity. Jamie Eckert, the Scrupulosity Coach, had a lot of valuable information on her website. I used the Gateway Institute's website. And I also took some of these from The Doubting Disease. That's the 1995 book by psychologist Joseph Girochi. So, obsessions. right? These are the scrupulous obsessions. These are excessive concerns about blaspheming, fears of blaspheming, accusing God of being negligent or abusive or evil or cursing God. So that's the first one, fears of blaspheming. Second one, fears of sacrilege. For example, abusing our Lord in the Eucharist or doing something that would damage a church or something like that, some kind of sacrilege. Fears of that. Third one, fears about impulses. 
For example, taking one's clothes off in church or screaming obscenities during Mass. Fourth one, sexual thoughts about a romantic partner. And those were the kinds of thoughts that were troubling me when I was 19. Fifth, sexual thoughts or images about a religious figure. For example, thoughts about sexual contact with Jesus, Mary, or a saint, or possibly a priest or a religious. Sixth, fears around harming others. Fears that I might be the cause of death of someone if I sneeze or cough during Mass. I coughed. Maybe I'm sick. Maybe I have COVID. Maybe I'm a spreader, right? Or a pharmacist who worries she will fill prescriptions incorrectly and poison the customer's of her pharmacy, that kind of thing. Number seven, fears around aggression. The driver is leaving a parish council meeting pretty late at night. It's dark in the parking lot. There's a bump. He goes over a bump and he thinks, oh no, I may have run over the pastor. Fears of aggression. Fears of cooperating in the sins of others. And Joseph Chiarochi gave this example. He said, a man participates in a discussion about a historical figure who's been dead for more than a a thousand years, who is alleged to have been a homosexual. He worries that he has committed the sin of detraction. Number nine, being a sinful person, being dishonest, lacking integrity. Number 10, ruminating about past mistakes, errors, or sins. Number 11, looking for moral perfection. Number 12, not loving others enough. Here's where we get some mothers who worry about not loving their children enough. They can start to obsessively ruminate about that and get scrupulous about how much they love their kids. 13, obsessions about going to hell. 14, obsessions about death. 15, obsessions about a loss of impulse control. 16, cyclical doubts, All right, often about whether you've sold your soul to the devil or whether you're in mortal sin. And then 17, obsessions about intrusive thoughts or images could be 666 or Satan or hell or pornographic images or something like that. So those are the obsessions. Let's talk about the compulsions now that are involved with scrupulosity. And there are two kinds. There are the behavioral ones, and those are the ones that you can actually see, that another person could see. And then there are the mental ones. Those are the ones that happen inside the scrupulous person's head. Behavioral compulsions. So the first one, excessive trips to confession. Second one, repeatedly seeking reassurance from religious leaders and loved ones that you're okay. Third one, Cleansing and purifying rituals. Fourth one, acts of self-sacrifice. Fifth one, repetitive religious behaviors of various kinds. Sixth one, avoiding situations like religious services in which they believe a religious or moral error would be likely or would cause something bad to happen. Seventh one, avoiding certain objects or locations because of fears that they may be sinful. So those are the behavioral compulsions associated with scrupulosity. Let's talk about the mental compulsions, the ones that go on inside your head. Excessive praying, and sometimes with an emphasis on the prayer needing to be perfect. And I had some compulsions about prayer later in life when I was in my early 30s. I I had this concept come into my head about tithing 
uh, tithing prayer time. Maybe I should, maybe I should give one tenth of my time to prayer. But then I had another dilemma, right? Because I started to pray 1.6 hours per day because I was like, okay, 16 hours, I'm awake. One tenth of that is 1.6 hours. But maybe that's not good enough. Maybe I need to pray 2.4 hours per day, right? Like one tenth of 24 hours is 2.4 hours, which is two hours and 24 minutes for those of you that didn't do the math. I did do the math because when you are scrupulous, you do things like that. You think along those lines. God wants me to pray for 2.4 hours a day. I'm not sure exactly where that came up with that. I think I generalized it from uh, 10% of my income. I want to tithe 10% of my income, tithe 10% of my time, and then maybe God will be uh, be okay. I won't have to give him any more. He won't. He won't demand any more of me than that. Two point four hours seems pretty generous. I give him that, and then maybe it'll be enough, right? It's sort of the attitude that I had about that in my manager parts. So needing to pray perfectly or at least adequately enough—that's the second one. Repeatedly imagining sacred images or phrases, bringing them to mind, repeating passages from sacred scripture inside of one's head. That's another one. That's the fourth one. And the fifth one, making pacts with God to avoid hell or to buy time or just to get a little relief in the present moment. So those are the mental compulsions. There's this intense sense of guilt. Oftentimes, people with scrupulosity feel guilty most of the time or all of the time. And they feel guilty about things that don't carry moral weight. There's this inflated sense of moral responsibility. And another critical element is that there's not a good distinction made between thoughts and actions, between impulses, desires, and and things that come up spontaneously inside that don't carry a moral weight because they're not assented to by the will, and then actions and omissions. So let's give an example of what scrupulosity looks like. I really like this vignette from Joseph Gerochi's book, Doubting Disease. It goes like this, this description. He said, quote, The Smith family traditionally joins hands around the dinner table to give thanks and prayer before the meal. Susie, age four, and Billy, age six, sometimes are fidgety and always hungry. Mrs. Smith worries that Susie, Billy, and perhaps herself have not quote, truly prayed, end quote, due to the multiple distractions. Susie is scratching her mosquito bite, Billy is leering at the chocolate pudding, and Mrs. Smith remembers she has a school board meeting after dinner. She doubts that their prayers were, quote, heard, end quote, and so she requests that the family repeat their prayers. Sometimes she makes the whole family repeat them, and sometimes only the children. Once, the children needed to repeat them four times, even though Mr. Smith tried to intervene after the second time. Mrs. Smith sought advice from her pastor, who urged her not to repeat the prayers, either for herself or the children. When she attempts to follow this advice, however, her entire meal is ruined, as she attempts to sort out in her head whether this is acceptable to God. She will continue to worry about it throughout the rest of the evening including during her school board meeting, end quote. 
So one more useful little tidbit that I thought I'd throw in here is on the International OCD Foundation fact sheet, they actually had a useful little description that distinguishes scrupulosity from normal religious practice. They said, quote, unlike normal religious practice, scrupulous behavior usually exceeds or disregards religious law and may focus excessively on one trivial area of religious practice while other more important areas may be completely ignored. The behavior of the scrupulous individual is typically inconsistent with that of the rest of the faith community. Okay, so now what I want to get into is the internal experience of scrupulosity. What is it like inside? Let's go, let's go way back. Let's go back 2,000 years, and we'll hear from Plutarch. Plutarch, as many of you may know, was a first century priest for the Greek god Apollo at the temple at Delphi, and he wrote about the so-called superstitious man. Now, the superstitious man is basically a scrupulous man, and he said, Plutarch said, quote, and so is the soul of the superstitious man. He turns pale under his crown of flowers, is terrified while he sacrifices. He prays with a faltering voice, scatters incense with trembling hands, and all in all proves how mistaken was the saying of Pythagoras that we are at our best when approaching the gods. For that is the time when the superstitious are the most miserable and most woebegone. End quote. Listen to what Plutarch says. It's when the superstitious man, when the scrupulous man approaches the gods that he freaks out. That's going to become really important later because that's what really destabilizes scrupulous people. It's actually approaching God. I'll have a lot more to say about that when I give you my take on scrupulosity at the end. But I want you to remember that from Plutarch. The OCD Center of Los Angeles says, quote, one of the first documented references to obsessive compulsive disorder was in a 1691 sermon by Anglican Bishop John Moore of Norwich, in which he discussed men and women who were overwhelmed with unwanted thoughts and tormented by feelings of guilt and shame over what he described as, quote, religious melancholy, end quote. Priests had started to notice that some churchgoers were attending confession several times a day and repeatedly confessing to the same sins and shortcomings that they feared would result in divine judgment and eternal damnation. Their penance and absolution would provide only a fleeting glimpse of peace, and then their fears would come roaring back. So 1691, 17th century, we're starting to get descriptions that are pretty clear about what religious scrupulosity looks like. In 1997, William Van Ornum, in his book, A Thousand Frightening Fantasies, Understanding Scrupulosity and Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, a 24-year-old computer programmer writes, quote, what worries me is that at any moment, and in only a few seconds, I can commit serious sin. The only remedy is confession. I worry about what I've done until I confess it. Then it's all over. The problem is that I fall or worry again and need to go back, end quote. Father Thomas Santa, in his book, Understanding Scrupulosity, stated that it's like constructing a spider web in the mind. Father Santa said, quote, people with the disorder often feel as if they are isolated in darkness. 
They describe this feeling as a cloud that perpetually engulfs them. They feel the disorder constantly and uncomfortably, even in the background of day-to-day living. Scrupulosity demands constant attention and can feel like a severe and unrelenting master. At best, most people who suffer with the disorder have learned to live with it. They hope it does not get more pronounced or spill into other areas of life. Relief does not exist, so any promises of relief through activities like rituals are, ex- are essentially dead ends. For those who are religious, consistent spiritual practices can help and at the same time be debilitating. And then from Joseph Chiarochi's book, The Doubting Disease, he gave this very interesting little vignette of scrupulosity developing. He writes, quote, Bob is a 28-year-old married Jewish man who works for an accounting firm. He is thrilled with the birth of his first child, a bubbly infant girl. Bob intends to be totally involved with her as a parent and share in all aspects of child care. He was shocked by the following experience. Bob was changing his daughter's diaper when the thought, idea, or image, he wasn't quite sure, flashed through his mind touch her private parts. The first time it happened, he shuddered, tried to dismiss the idea, and hurriedly completed diapering her. He tried not to think about it. The next time he changed her diaper, however, the idea came back, but this time in the form of a graphic picture of Bob engaging in the dreaded behavior. This time, he felt nausea, became dizzy, and called his wife to finish, saying that he thought he was ill and would pass out. The idea began to torment Bob. He found himself not wanting to be alone with his diaper, lest he give in to this impulse. He refused to bathe her or change her diaper. Sensing something was drastically wrong, his wife urged him to seek help. He talked to his rabbi, who tried to assure him that he was not a child molester and should dismiss the thoughts. End quote. Okay, so let's move on to a psychodynamic perspective of what it's like to have scrupulosity. I'm going to be drawing from Nancy McWilliams' book, Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, Second Edition, and also the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual, Second Edition. For folks that have scrupulosity, again, as a subcategory of general OCD, thinking and doing predominate over feeling, sensing, intuiting, listening, playing, daydreaming, and enjoying the creative arts. Anything that's not rationally driven or instrumental, useful in some way, is devalued. So thinking and doing really are prioritized. The rest of the interior life, feeling, sensing, intuiting, listening, playing, daydreaming, enjoying the creative arts, that's not valued. Recreation's not valued. People with scrupulosity hold themselves to very high standards and sometimes just impossibly high standards. Here's where it gets really interesting because according to psychodynamic thought, scrupulosity specifically and Obsessive-compulsive dynamics in general have one central conflict. They revolve around one central conflict, and that is rage at being controlled versus a fear of being condemned and punished. That is the conflict around which all this other stuff revolves, and it's not 
conscious. This conflict is too threatening to be kept in conscious awareness, and so it's suppressed into the unconscious in the way that psychodynamic clinicians think. So, around that are a bunch of other conflicts that, are, that stem off of the central conflict, cooperation versus rebellion, initiative versus sloth, cleanliness versus slovenliness, order versus disorder, thrift versus improvidence. It's all kinds of polarizations that can happen around this central conflict at rage about being controlled versus a fear of being condemned or punished. With folks that have scrupulosity, emotion is unformulated, it's often muted or suppressed or unavailable, or it's rationalized. The exceptions can be anxiety, right? Because often that's felt in conscious awareness and sometimes depressed mood. The thing is, though, that folks with scrupulosity often consign most feelings to an undervalued role. This is right from Nancy McWilliams. Feelings are associated with childishness, weakness, loss of control, and disorganization, and sometimes even like dirt. Okay. There's this condemnation of oneself for internal thought crimes, and that condemnation can be conscious or unconscious. And the body states that go along with scrupulosity, specifically in OCD more in general, are hyperarousal, right? This is the fight or flight response. This is revving up. This is expressing anxiety through the body. Individuals with OCD and scrupulosity have difficulty with play, with humor, and with spontaneity. They experience pain about their isolation. There's shame associated with being considered weird or unacceptable to other people. Many individuals with OCD and scrupulosity are capable of loving attachments, but they can have real difficulty expressing their more tender sides without anxiety and shame. In their relational patterns, they tend to seek relational partners who they can control and sometimes partners who can reassure them. So being intimate in relationships is difficult, that emotional connection, and then there's all kinds of difficulties often around sex. So that's from a psychodynamic perspective. Let's talk about the causes of scrupulosity. What what are the theoretical causes of scrupulosity? So Father James Jackson said that the fathers of the church considered scrupulosity, they called it psychasthenia, that's what the Greek fathers called it, to be a spiritual problem which leads to a psychological malfunction. In the 15th and 16th century, theologians were starting to connect scruples to moral reasoning, and it was addressed under the broad area of conscience. This concept of erroneous conscience started to come up. There was an emphasis on freeing the person to act without resolving the doubt, because sometimes the doubt just couldn't be resolved. Well, let's look at secular sources. The IO, the International OCD Foundation fact sheet says, quote, the exact cause of scrupulosity is not known. Like other forms of OCD, scrupulosity may be the result of several factors, including genetic and environmental influences, end quote. Okay, they're saying we don't really know. The OCDUK.com you know, admits, yes, there's a lot of controversy about the origins of scrupulosity. There could be biological factors, 
Again, the strep infections leading to pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders associated with streptococcal infections, or PANDAS is the acronym for that. There's some genetic factors, possibly a meta-analytic review from 2001 basically said that a person with OCD is four times more likely to have another family member with OCD than a person who does not have OCD. All right, so there might be some genetic predispositions there. And then cognitive theory. Cognitive theory says that OCD is generated basically from the intrusive thoughts that we all have. Everybody has intrusive thoughts at, t- at times, but people with OCD have this inflated sense of responsibility and they interpret those thoughts as very significant and important. They can't just brush them off like most people do. They get caught up in a pattern of trying to resist those thoughts, trying to block those thoughts, trying to neutralize those thoughts. And so the question becomes, what is the meaning of the thought to the person, right? Now, following along this cognitive understanding of OCD and cognitive understanding specifically of scrupulosity, Joseph Chiarochi also weighs in in his book, Doubting Disease. Now, he's following psychologist David Barlow on some of this, and he basically says, yes, There are some people who are temperamentally disposed to having high levels of anxiety, high levels of nervous energy, and more pronounced bodily reactions to stress, right? And so those folks are are more vulnerable. OCD is different from other anxiety disorders because those with OCD believe that certain kinds of thoughts are dangerous in themselves. They can't let those thoughts go because those thoughts are dangerous. If I think certain thoughts or if I spontaneously imagine certain things or if I have an impulse to do something, then I am the kind of person who would do those things. Just having that thought or just having that image pop up or that spontaneous impulse condemns me because now it means that I'm the type of person that would actually carry those kinds of things out. So there is no moral distance between the spontaneous thought or image or impulse and actually doing the thing, actually doing the act. So that means that I must be bad. I must be unclean. I must be unworthy. So Dr. Chirochi has this model for the development of scrupulosity. It goes like this. There's a strong belief that certain thoughts are dangerous and unacceptable, This leads to the occurrence of those same intrusive thoughts, which generates significant anxiety. That anxiety leads to strong efforts to suppress the thoughts, which accelerates the frequency of the same kinds of thoughts. And this leads to a need to turn off the anxiety by any means. So that brings in mental rituals, that brings in physical rituals. The rituals are the compulsions. And when the scrupulous person does his scrupulous compulsion, there's a temporary respite. There's this little bit of relief. The compulsive rituals are then reinforced because they temporarily decrease anxiety. They provide a little relief, at least in the short term. But then there's the loop back to the occurrence of the intrusive thoughts again, and the whole cycle churns on. So that's Joseph Chiarochi's particular view. I'm going to bring in also a psychodynamic understanding of where OCD comes from and scrupulosity. Again, this is from this is from Nancy McWilliams, psychologist Nancy McWilliams' work. 
And it's interesting because Father Mark Foley's approach in his book, The Context of Holiness, about St. Teresa of Lisieux's scrupulosity was largely a psychodynamic investigation. So, parental figures who set high standards of behavior and expect early conformity to them, for example, like making little kids, like little kids, three years old, four years old, sit still during mass, that is a risk factor. If parents are strict and consistent in rewarding good behavior and in punishing malfeasance, that's a risk factor. There's a risk of condemning not only behaviors, but also the feelings that go with them right? Especially anger. If parents can't tolerate children's anger, that's a risk factor. There's also, in psychodynamic thinking, issues around control and the families of origin of people that eventually go on to develop scrupulosity or OCD. There's control battles that happen between parents and children. Now, as an alternative, there can also be OCD developing in a really lax family in which the children are underparented because in those situations, the child concludes that he has to model himself after a parental figure that he invents himself. He's got to make up his own parental figure. And if that child has an aggressive or intense temperament, he can project that intensity. He can project that aggression onto his idealized internal parent figure and really come up with a standard, an internal parental standard that is just too harsh. It's not tempered by any sense of human kindness or sense of proportion. Self-esteem then comes from the meeting the demands of these internalized parent figures who hold these children to a high standard of behavior and sometimes thought. And so there's this value of control, self-control, That's more important than nearly any other virtue in these families of origin. So discipline, order, loyalty, integrity, reliability, perseverance, all that kind of stuff really being emphasized. Okay, so let's move on to the question of, is a particular religion a cause for scrupulosity? Say Catholicism. Does does the mere fact that you're Catholic make you more prone to become scrupulous? Well, there are two sides to this. One is no. And that's the side that Timothy Sizemore, Catherine Barton, and Mary Keeley come down. And they say that there's a tendency to blame religion for scrupulosity. But that's that shouldn't happen. You shouldn't blame religion for scrupulosity any more than you would blame counting compulsions on math class. And similarly, Joseph Chiarochi in his book says, quote, Religion doesn't cause scrupulosity any more than teaching someone French history causes them to believe he is Napoleon. All human beings exist in some cultural context. End quote. The International OCD Foundation fact sheet says, quote, Scrupulosity is an equal opportunity disorder. It can affect individuals from a variety of different faith traditions. Although more research is Needed to truly answer this question, there is currently no evidence to link scrupulosity to a specific religion. End quote. And the OCD Center of Los Angeles says, quote, It is worth noting that scrupulosity is not partial to any one religion, but rather custom fits its message of doubt to the specific beliefs and practices of the sufferer. End quote. That's really significant. They really hit it on the head there. It's really about the specific beliefs and practices of the sufferer. 
Joseph Chirochi discusses this because he says, quote, religion may contribute to the development of scrupulosity when its content is presented in an, in an overly harsh, punitive manner. Students of such presentations are likely to associate the context of the religious message with fear and anxiety, end quote. All right, so let me give you an example of content being presented in an overly harsh, punitive manner, right? Christian content. I'm going to quote Jonathan Edwards, who was a 18th century pastor. He was a theologian and a pastor in the Congregational Church in Connecticut. This is from his sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. This is a paragraph. I'm just going to share one little bit of it. Pastor Edwards tells us, quote, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn revel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire at every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night that you were suffered to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep, and there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. Well, in that special... Little words of wisdom from Pastor Edwards here. Yeah, you know, this is the kind of thing that isn't actually Christianity. It's something else. And one of the things that Father Jackson tells us is that different types of heresies can contribute to the development of scrupulosity in Catholics. He specifies three, Manichaeanism, Pelagianism, and Jansenism. Manichaeanism states that all matter is evil, right? So if a child grows up with this extreme attitude towards modesty, Father Jackson tells us, where the flesh is seen as evil because it's the cause of forbidden impulses, then the slightest catering to the demands or the needs of the flesh can result in a torment which rejects the goodness of the body, right? So there's ways in which the body can be condemned because of what are ultimately Manichaean ideas that can infiltrate the faith. That can happen in families. The second heresy that Father Jackson cites as contributing to the development of scrupulosity in Catholics is Pelagianism, right? This, and he says, quote, there was once a British monk named Pelagius who taught that a man can observe God's laws by human effort alone, that grace was not needed to do so. If the heresy of Pelagianism works its way into the soul, it is an easy step to thinking that any lack of perfection is entirely one's own fault. 
One thinks, quote, this business of salvation is my work, so I'd better be perfect when I dot, 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 close quote. This salvation becomes something one must achieve by personal effort instead of by cooperation with grace. So this idea that I have to do it on my own, I have to do it on my own. And then the third one is Jansenism. And Father Jackson tells us that Jansenism is another heresy in which scrupulosity can grow well. It emphasizes that Christ did not die for all, stresses man's sinfulness, and requires extreme penances on a regular basis. It leads to infrequent communions and flowers into scrupulosity as a matter of course. And just an interesting note, Jansenism flourished within Roman Catholicism primarily in the 17th and 18th centuries. It was condemned by Pope Innocent X in 1653. It was also condemned in 1713 by Pope Clement XI in his bull Unigenitus. Jansenism focuses on how it was impossible for men and women to obey the Lord's commandments and to be redeemed without God's special, divine, and irresistible grace. And Jansenism taught that Jesus died only for the elect. There's a real sense of predestination in Jansenistic thought. Now, Father Mark Foley, he agrees. He identified Jansenism as the, quote, remote cause, end quote, of St. Teresa of Lisieux's troubles growing up. It was the remote cause of her scrupulosity. And biographer Conrad de Meester said that, quote, Zelie's mother, okay, so this is Zelie Martin, who was canonized. She was the mother of St. Teresa of Lisieux. So we're talking about St. Teresa of Lisieux's maternal grandmother. Quote, Zelie's mother, who taught her daughters an excessive fear of offending God, used to harp on the phrase, quote, that's a sin, end quote, to curb the least imperfections. Zelie had an excessive fear of sin and hell. Zelie was terrified that her five-year-old daughter, Helene, was in purgatory or perhaps even in hell because she once told a lie, end quote. So we're starting to see how the Jansenism that was prominent in France at the end of the 19th century was still heavily there. Father Mark Foley discusses how that permeated the Carmel at Lisieux and how it was frequently um, frequently still present in different homilies and sermons that St. Teresa of Lisieux heard. All right, so let's start talking about like recovery. Right, let's try to get this onto a little different course here. Joseph Chirochi, in his chapter, I think it's chapter four, entitled Scrup- Scruples in the History of Pastoral Care in his book, Doubting Disease, he put scrupulosity in the context of church history before it was viewed through the modern lens of psychiatric diagnosis. Okay, so he describes several principles for the treatment of scruples from the pastoral care tradition. He says that in general, pastors were saying, act contrary to the scruples, Follow the example of others without lengthy and burdensome moral reasoning. Rely on the guidance of one spiritual advisor rather than consulting multiple spiritual authorities. Put yourself in situations that trigger the obsessional thought and avoid the religious rituals and prayers which serve as the compulsions. So basically, he's arguing that they were actually doing the kinds of things that that preceded modern behavioral treatments. He said that these pastoral principles quote, contained the seeds of modern behavioral treatments, end quote. And that included modeling by others, exposure to the upsetting situation, and blocking the compulsive response. Father William Doyle, back in 1897, so we're talking more than 120 years ago, 
suggested prayer, vigilance, struggling against depression, and obedience to an experienced confessor. He wanted perfect and trustful obedience to that spiritual director. Those were his general remedies. The particular remedies that Father Doyle offered were that first, doubts must be ignored. Second, belief in the easiness of forgiveness must be fostered, right? So that forgiveness is easy. It's not difficult. God wants to forgive us. Third, presume the decisions of the spiritual director. Think about what your spiritual director would say and go with that. Take a lenient view of your own faults, right? That was the fourth recommendation. The fifth remedy was promptness in acting on decisions. The sixth was broad-minded interpretation of advice, not giving the, the advice from a spiritual director too narrow, but broadening it out. And seventh, not piling up questions. Father Thomas Santa, he was the co-founder of Scrupulous Anonymous, had these 10 commandments for the scrupulous. First, without exception, you shall not confess sins you have already confessed. Second, you shall confess only sins that are clear and certain. Third, you shall not repeat your penance or any of the words of your penance after confession for any reason. Fourth, you shall not worry about breaking your pre-communion fast unless you put food and drink in your mouth and swallow it as a meal. Five, you shall not worry about powerful and vivid thoughts, desires, and imaginings involving sex and religion unless you deliberately generate them for the purpose of offending God. Number six, you shall not worry about powerful and intense feelings, including sexual feelings or emotional outbursts, unless you deliberately gen generate them to offend God. Seven, you shall obey your confessor when he tells you never to repeat a general confession of sins already confessed to him or another confession or another confessor. Eight, when you doubt your obligation to do or not do something, you will see your doubt as proof that there is no obligation. Number nine, when you are doubtful, you shall assume that the act of commission or omission you're in doubt about is not sinful, and you shall proceed without dread of sin. Number 10, you shall put your total trust in Jesus Christ, knowing he loves you as only God can, and that he will never allow you to lose your soul. All right, so on that last one, I can see Father Santa's pastoral approach. But it starts to sound a little bit like predestination for heaven, like Jesus will make us go to heaven. And a lot of scrupulous clients are well enough formed to, to be able to refute that um, legitimately on grounds. It sort of like takes away free will. So I'm not so sure about that last one, but those are the Ten Commandments for the scrupulous from Father Thomas Santa. How do we get over this? What do the secular experts provide us as the means for recovery? The International OCD Foundation fact sheet says that, quote, scrupulosity responds to the same treatments as those used with other forms of OCD. Cognitive behavioral therapy featuring a procedure called exposure and response prevention is the primary psychological treatment for scrupulosity. And so there we're back to ERP. We talked a lot about ERP in the last episode, episode 86. So... The thing is, though, that there's some particular difficulties using ERP for scrupulosity. There's some difficulties. Now, we talked about how there were difficulties using ERP at all because of how uncomfortable it is for those with OCD. But when we bring in scrupulosity, there are some additional issues, and we'll go over those now. Dr. Chiarochi said in his book, quote, my opinion 
based on the clinical and theoretical aspects of scruples, is that scruples are resistant to change because their religious nature places many of them in the domain of overvalued ideas. In other words, the person sees the stakes are so high in religious doubts, that is, salvation depends on being correct, that the senselessness of the behavior is less evident. After all, Faith itself implies looking beyond sensory experiences in the surface meaning of reality. Scrupulous people usually know their peers do not act the way they do. But since religious salvation is such an individual experience, can one really take a chance and ignore that inner voice? Therefore, the religious aspect of scruples create a motivational drive around the symptoms which become overvalued ideas and hence resistant to change. What that means is that it's not the same thing as having obsessions about going over a bridge or not going over a bridge because you're concerned the bridge might collapse. We're dealing with matters of ultimate significance here and also matters that are not quite so disprovable, right? How do we know that God won't smite me if I don't do this particular behavior, right? And do I want to take the chance of him, of him smiting me? It's a real question. Jamie Eckert, the scrupulosity coach, wrote, quote, ERP can feel like it has deep moral and spiritual implications. Although it is a method that is helping you develop a normal spirituality, it can feel terribly frightening. For example, the woman who prays compulsively, repeating her prayers dozens of times until she feels they are done, quote, right, end quote, might be asked to pray only once and then stop, no matter how she feels. This can easily feel like a denial of faith. So scrupulous sufferers begin dropping out of treatment when ERP gets more intense. And Kevin Foss, the founder of the California OCD and Anxiety Treatment Center in Fullerton, California, says, quote, People suffering with religious scrupulosity struggle with the ERP process because they fear that exposure therapy will result in genuine sin convey that they are okay with that sin and that they do not respect God or God's will. Furthermore, scrupulosity sufferers are generally knowledgeable of their faith's doctrine and biblical texts, so they are quick to present chapter and verse explaining why they should avoid exposure and give in to compulsive acts. Despite my reminders of clients' logical arguments, they respond with, but you never know, and but what if God mistakes my intention in the exposure and now I'm really guilty of sin? So to do anything that could potentially put that into question or undermine it was experienced as possibly damaging to the practice of faith, challenging one's fundamental belief in God or leaving one vulnerable to shifting beliefs in a slippery slope into sin. That's why ERP is particularly difficult with religious OCD or scrupulosity. We talked a lot about that in the last episode. I'm not going to spend any more time on ERP today. Let's talk about psychodynamic approaches for treating OCD that can be applied to scrupulosity. I'm going back to Nancy McWilliams' book, Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, here. And she recommends ordinary kindness. You know, people with scruples know that they are exasperating for reasons that are unclear to everybody, right? We don't really know. Priests get frustrated, parents get frustrated, friends get frustrated. The, the folks with scruples often get frustrated with themselves. And so we don't want to hurry them, advise them, or criticize them. And we want to avoid becoming the equivalent of the controlling, demanding parent. We don't want to set up power struggles, according to psychodynamic thought. 
but we still want to continue to relate warmly. We want to convey a lot of acceptance to those who suffer from scrupulosity. We want to avoid intellectualization and psychodynamic thinking on OCD, specifically in scrupulosity in particular, is about getting to the anger. They recognize that there's anger, anger around these control issues. Remember, that central conflict is rage at being controlled versus a fear of being condemned, a fear of being punished, right? And this is sort of what Conrad Bars had said in his, in his work. He was a Catholic psychiatrist that said fear can suppress anger. One emotion can suppress another emotion. And the idea with scrupulosity is that the fear almost completely suppresses the anger or the rage, but that doesn't mean it's gone away. It's just in the unconscious. Joseph Chiarochi, in his book, The Doubting Disease, laid out his treatment program very clearly. It's an essentially an exposure and response prevention program where you target the scruples you want to change. You identify your obsessional scruples through self-monitoring. You identify your compulsive scruples. You write them down. You write down what avoidance acts you're doing to try to reduce anxiety. You record the circumstances around the, the, the scruples. You make ratings of the intensity of the anxiety triggered by each of the obsessions and each of the compulsions. And you record the amount of time that you spent worrying about the scruples. There's lots of forms, lots of charts. There are all in the book. So you're targeting those scruples and then you look at your motivation to change. How motivated are you? Where are you in that hierarchy of motivations of change? You create a personal motivation plan where you list the benefits of eliminating the scruples and you list the costs of not changing the scruples and there's more forms and charts. And then you prepare for the change and then you set up the plan for repeated exposure to the feared object or conditions. You're going to start challenging the obsessions. And from the very start of the fear response, there's, you know, there's this reliance that the body is going to start a counter response to return the body to a normal homeostasis. That's called habituation. The nervous system gets bored with the danger. It returns back to normal. And so he uses this example of a jackhammer breaking up the asphalt on your road. You know, when it first starts pounding, you might jump, but then you get used to it. You habituate to it. You realize there's nothing dangerous there and your body settles down. But you have to be able to prolong the exposure long enough to generate significant anxiety and the exposure must be repeated over and over again. You've got you've to get yourself anxious over and over again with whatever it is that is causing the anxiety in your scrupulous obsession. And then the compulsive scrupulous response must be blocked. You've got to be prevented from doing whatever it is that helps you to feel better so that you can find that you can calm down without the compulsion right? Because the compulsion gave you that brief respite. That's what's self-reinforcing about the compulsion, but you can calm down without it, right? And there are more charts and forms to teach you how to do that in the book. All right. So those are sort of the conventional ways of looking at the treatment of scrupulosity and looking at scrupulosity in general. I'm going to tell you what I think about it now. I'm going to start with the bottom line. I think scrupulosity is generated by a desperate attempt to find safety from a terrible, dangerous, and uncaring God, and that's carried out by a shameful, undeserving, despicable sinner. That's what I think is going on at the core of this, all right? 
Scrupulosity is a twisted, frantic attempt to find some kind of safety from an angry, vengeful, heartless God for me, a reprobate, a delinquent, an evildoer, a sinner. And at the core, scrupulosity really starts with these appalling, awful God images. And the scrupulous person usually isn't aware of how terrible his or her God images really are because those terrible God images are not allowed into conscious awareness. Now, I discuss God images at length in episodes 23 to 29 of this podcast. It's a seven-episode series, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, all about God images. So be sure to check that out. If you don't know what I'm talking about with God images, I give it, go into it in a lot of detail. There's hours and hours of stuff about God images. But in brief, my God image is my emotional and subjective experience of God, who I feel feel God to be in the moment, which may or may not correspond to who God actually is. It's what I feel about God in my bones. This is my experiential sense, how my feelings and how my heart interpret God to be. God images are often outside of our conscious awareness, as I said, and initially God images are shaped by the relationship I have with my parents. My God images are heavily influenced by psychological factors. Different God images can be activated at different times, depending on my emotional states and what psychological mode I am in at a given time. God images are always formed experientially. God images flow from my relational experiences and also how I construe and make sense of those images. And that happens when I'm very young. A lot of this happens Much of this happens before we even have the capacity for speech and before we reach the age of reason. My God images can be radically different than my God concept. So my God concept is what I profess to believe about God. My God concept is my more intellectual understanding of God based on what I've been taught, based on what I've explored through reading. I decide to believe in my God concept. And that's reflected in the creed. It's expanded in the catechism. It's the formal teaching of the church for an Orthodox Catholic. That's the God concept. Now I'm going to start bringing in some IFS concepts and connect them to scrupulosity, grounding it all in a Catholic understanding of the human person. Now, I discussed Robert Fox and Alessio Rizzo's internal family systems approach to OCD in the last episode. That was number 86, Obsessions, Compulsions, OCD, and Internal Family Systems. So you may want to check that out to get some more background about this. But a brief review, let's define what parts are in IFS. Parts are separate, independently operating personalities within us each with its own unique prominent needs, roles in our lives, emotions, body sensations, guiding beliefs and assumptions, typical thoughts, intentions, desires, attitudes, impulses, interpersonal styles, and and worldview. You can think of them as separate modes of operating if that's helpful to you. Now we also, in addition to the parts and the body, we have the self. That's the core of the person, the center of the person. This is who we sense ourselves to be in our best moments, when our self is free and unblended with any of our parts, the self governs our whole being as an active, compassionate leader. Right? So we have the self and the parts and the body. Now here's the critical idea. Each part has a God image. Each part has a way of understanding God based on its limited experience and based how, on how it construes that experience 
through whatever lenses and filters it has. We have as many God images as we have parts. And those God images are always distorted if the part is not in right relationship with the self. Parts learn via experience and they conceptualize things through the way they interpret their experience. This is particularly true in spiritual inferences. And those spiritual inferences about God can be markedly different than what God has revealed about himself through the Catholic Church. So let's let's take an example. Let's take a part that has had to carry the burden of interpersonal trauma. Let's say neglect by important figures, mom and dad, neglect, right? That part may generalize from that experience of neglect and see God as distant, disconnected, and uncaring. It might have a deistic God image. And that part may be disassociated from the rest of the system. The manager parts, the protector parts, don't want that exiled part with that deistic God image, seeing God as distant and, and, and uncaring, to come into the system to share that image because that's really threatening to the manager parts. They don't want that to be shared. Parts may be very afraid of God. They might be very angry at God. They might be very disappointed with God. They might be disinterested in God. They might refuse to connect with God. And well, all of that creates tension within the person. Parts' understandings of God can vary wildly. One part might be really angry and rejecting. Another part might be terrified of God. A third might be grieving the loss of God. A fourth may feel distant and cold toward God. And a fifth part, and this is all in the same person, may not even believe that God exists. So as different parts come up and as they blend with the self, becoming more prominent in the system, like in Inside Out when they take over the control panel, Whenever a part takes over the control panel and blends, that part's going to bring its God image into conscious awareness. And that explains how our conscious perspectives of God can shift. Whichever part of us has taken over, whichever part of us is blended and driving our bus, that part's God image is going to be dominating at the moment. So in my view, a scrupulous person's parts are in a life and death battle with each other over this God question. It's more than a physical life and death battle too. It's a spiritual life and death battle. It's an eternal life and death battle. The stakes couldn't be higher. The scrupulous person's managers believe that if they don't suppress the parts with negative God images, the consequence could be to be damned to hell for all eternity. That's the stakes. Manager parts are trying to appease God. They're trying to seek his approval. They're trying to make things all right. They're trying to, to strive to meet his demands. They're trying to be perfect when that perfectionism comes in. Father Thomas LaSanta says that these, that scrupulous individuals say things like this, quote, I will make God love me by becoming perfect. In this way, God will have to love me. An enormous amount of energy is wasted by the scrupulous person trying to fix himself or herself or trying to become perfect. Close quote. Okay, here it is, right? I, I, I'm trying to become perfect so that God will have to love me as though it's some sort of contractual arrangement, as though it's some sort of like business deal. It's some sort of like, okay, if I can tick all the boxes, then I'll be acceptable. It's not about a relationship for those manager parts. So in order to try to be acceptable to God, the manager parts 
and a scrupulous person's system, they have to suppress or exile the parts that have offensive God images or who may otherwise seem inappropriate or unacceptable to God. Again, those are the parts that are angry in God. Those are the parts that are disappointed in God. Those are the parts that are disgusted with God. Those are the parts that are indifferent towards God, the parts that don't believe God exists. All those ways of construing God that those parts have make sense if you understand the part's experience and how it construed its experience of God. Now, that doesn't mean those God images are accurate. So often they're not, but they, they, they don't actually correspond to who God really is. But the part doesn't know that. And this business of rejecting and condemning and judging and banishing, it doesn't help the part get over the God image. The only thing that's going to help the part get over the God image is to come into contact with love. Love is the only thing that's going to actually heal that. Your serotonin reuptake inhibitors are not going to touch that. The part needs to have an experience of God as he is. And so what happens in the spiritual life is that some of our parts may be in contact with God, but not all of our parts. It is relatively rare in my experience for somebody to have a connection with God that crosses all of their parts, where they've hit a, 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 a level of integration of recollection that allows all of their parts to be in relationship with God under the leadership and guidance of the self. What happens is that these manager parts that are so concerned about God's wrath, so concerned about condemnation, so concerned about damnation to hell, they see other parts as evil, harmful, and terrifying. They see other parts as demons, as lepers, as tax collectors, as prostitutes, as dangerous sinners. They banish them for what those parts have to carry. And these manager parts also believe that they can speak for God. They assume that they know what God wants. They're not in really in relationship with God, though. They're really what they're doing is they're following a code or a standard, a list of rules or expectations that they came up with on their own. It wasn't given to them by God. So it's not about relationship really for those managers. It's about not being harmed by God. It's about avoiding being hurt. It's about safety. And that leads us to the first two conditions for secure attachment. The first two conditions for secure attachment, according to Daniel Brown and David Elliott in their 2016 book, Attachment Disturbances in Adults, Treatment for Comprehensive Repair, the first two conditions for secure attachment are first, felt safety and protection, and secondly, feeling seen, known, heard, and understood. So let's start to go through these and start, let's understand this from the level and the perspective of parts now. Let's start taking it down to the level of parts. Felt safety and protection. Right. The significant thing here, the significant word is felt. There can't just be actual safety and protection. The safety and protection has to be felt. It has to be sensed. And in scrupulosity, there is no felt sense of safety and protection for so many parts because they're God images and their fears about the God images of other parts. That's just so intense. 
the first primary condition of secure attachment is not met. There isn't safety. There isn't a felt sense of protection. That basic relational need is not met for so many parts. They're isolated. They're lost. They're like lost sheep. They feel really vulnerable, really unsafe. The managers are striving really hard to try to make it okay, but they never get there. It never works. Let's bring up Pastor Jonathan Edwards again from his sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And he says, The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more. They rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yes, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell. It would be nothing to withstand or endure it. Yeah. Are you going to feel safe with a God like Jonathan Edwards' God? Hmm? But this is the experience of parts. So many parts. Sinners in the hand of an angry God. Or God on a distant quasar so far away. Or raging at a God who was so unjust to let the abuse happen. Or whatever the part experienced, right? Because parts only have very partial experiences. They don't have anything like a complete experience. They have only very narrow slices of the experience of the human being. So that's the first condition. Felt safety and protection Parts don't have that when they have these terrible God images. That's what drives the scrupulosity. Let's go to the second condition. That is feeling seen, known, heard, and understood. Because there's no feeling of safety and protection for some parts, they don't want to be seen, heard, known, and understood by God. They don't want to be near God. They don't trust him. And that makes sense if you see how they understand God. Some parts may want to be seen, heard, known, and understood by God, even if they don't feel safe. They are desperate for, for attention, for any kind of attention from God, even negative attention. So they signal distress by intense impulses toward acting out, especially in ways designed to get God's attention. Blasphemy, for example. Just like a neglected little kid might act out if he's desperate for some kind of attention from his father, any kind of attention, he's going to act out, he's going to do something that gets under his father's skin in the hope that his father will at least notice him, at least see, hear, and maybe at some point understand him. Right. So there can be parts that are operating like that. Scrupulosity is the son of anger and the grandson of shame. Scrupulosity is the son of anger and it's the grandson of shame. 
we get back to the beginning of this core issues of shame that are suppressed. That's the center of this. I did a whole 13 episode series on shame from episodes 37 to 49. If you haven't listened to that, you really should. That's the core of so much psychological distress. That's the core of so much emotional distress is this deep sense of shame, of a defective identity, of being unworthy, of being unloved, of being unlovable. It goes back to that. That's the core. That's the starting point if you really want to understand what's going on with scrupulosity. This other stuff about you know obsessions and anxiety reduction and blah, blah, blah. That's all surface stuff. ERP, surface stuff. Yes, it works. I have a sense, we talked about this in the last episode, I have a sense that one neural network is suppressing another neural network. I talked about it last time, I'm not gonna get into it again. It goes back to shame with scrupulosity. And what makes it complicated is that because these images of God are so nasty, they're so cruel, they're so uncaring that they generate anger. If God is really like these parts believe him to be, that's awful. He's a terrible God. He's not worth worshiping. But that's so frightening. If any of that were to come up, if God were to hear that, oh, his finger would be on that smite button so fast, right? That's what our managers think when you're being scrupulous. Scrupulous individuals have a very hard time allowing their anger at God to emerge into conscious awareness. They have trouble with anger in general, usually. If you look at scrupulous individuals, a lot of times the anger is very muted because it seems like such a dangerous emotion. When you look at the unreasonably demanding and exacting God images that those manager parts have, how could there not be anger about what those parts believe that God expects? And think about it this way. Who would really want to be with a God like that? Like, would you really want to be face-to-face with a God like those scrupulous managers have? Face-to-face with that God forever and eternity? You know, so these parts are caught in a dilemma. They don't want hell, but heaven isn't all that appealing either to be close, that close face-to-face with a God like that. What happens and what's so tragic about the scrupulous dynamic is that God often doesn't get an opportunity to show the scrupulous person in relationship who he really is. So this becomes really self-perpetuating. A lot of times a scrupulous person does not trust that there's a core self that can mediate between the parts and God. I wrote a blog about this last week. Uh, It was called Inner Pre-Evangelization, a focus on internal trust. It talks about the role of the self, the mediating role of the self to bring all of us, all the parts into relationship with God. Because if you can lead from the self, if that core self can lead and govern the system, the parts can trust, they can form an internal attachment. They begin to trust that core self And then that core self can be with them for the encounter with God. 
Remember, the self is the core of the person, the center of the person. This is who we sense ourselves to be in our best moments, when our self is free, when we're unblended with, from any of our parts, when we're unblended with all of our parts. It's when that core self governs our whole being as an active, compassionate leader that we're in this place of being recollected and where we can be really integrated. We want to be recollected. We want the self-governing all our parts like the conductor of an orchestra. You know, that's like the self and the musicians are like the parts, right? There's a unity there because it's one orchestra and there's a multiplicity there because there are these parts, the musicians and the conductor, the self. Or it's like the captain of a ship who leads and governs all the sailors, right? In an ordered way in a way that's just and kind. And there are these qualities when the core self is in charge, this calmness, this curiosity, this compassion, the confidence, courage, clarity, connectedness, creativity, there's this kindness. The self can be the secure internal attachment figure for the parts. And the self can love the parts if the self is freed by the parts to be able to do that, that's IFS's, that's an IFS tenant. And I think there's something really too that I haven't worked out all of that yet, but there seems something really important about the self leading this cooperative effort, this collaborative effort with the parts. The self can control the self can contract with those parts not to overwhelm with the intensity of their experience. There can be a trust that God is good enough to understand and tolerate our parts' feelings, that our parts are not going to overwhelm God and, and upset him and lead him to act out against us in some kind of irritable way. All right. That God is actually much better than our parts construe him to be. We need to trust that our God knows that we are dust and ashes, that we are like little children. He knows these things. And St. Therese of Lisieux is a great saint for this because she trusted not only in God's mercy, but in God's justice. Because God in his justice knows how weak we are, how powerless we are, how dependent we are, how much we depend on his grace and his favor in every moment. So in this sense, scrupulosity can be a gift. I know that sounds really radical. And for those of you who have gone through scrupulosity, that might sound, that might land hard, like a scrupulosity, a gift. Yeah, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his decree, Romans 8.28. There's no exceptions there for scrupulosity. I'm not saying that it's good in its own sort of essence. I'm saying that it can lead us to address these questions of parts and of God images and so forth. It can be the motivator that would get us to that depth in a way that nothing else could. Scrupulosity can be a gift if because it shows it's the symptom, it's the it's the the warning light to point out that there's something deeper going on here, and that's the issues around God image, and that's the issues around shame. Can we have that childlike simplicity? Can we have the trust? Right? And this is where I just love Father Jacques Philippe's work, especially his book, The Way of Trust and Love. I think that book is particularly helpful for those struggling with scrupulosity. 
Father Jacques Philippe says that the heart of the Christian life is to receive and welcome God's tenderness and goodness, the revelation of his merciful love, the revelation of his merciful love, and to let oneself be transformed interiorly by that love. He says later in that book, we would like to be experienced, irreproachable, never making mistakes, never falling, possessing unfailing good judgment and unimpeachable virtues, which is to say, we would like to have no more need of forgiveness or mercy, no more need of God and his help. And then this, this, this passage here is so important for those of us that have suffered from scrupulosity. We need to practice gentleness toward ourselves so as not to get discouraged and condemn ourselves when faced with our weakness, while also nurturing a great desire for holiness, but not a desire for extraordinary perfection. Holiness is different. It's a real desire to love God and our neighbor and eschewing a kind of halfway love goes to love's extremes. There's this, I'm going to bring in Father Mark Foley here again. Uh, this is a different book, a book he wrote on um, a study of a soul. It was his um, study edition of, of the, the story of a soul. He said, quote, the command be ye perfect, end quote, does not enjoin us to strive for a flawless performance in the various tasks of life, but to do them, to do those tasks of life as God wills us. We feel driven to do an A-plus job on projects in which we have overinvested our egos. But doing God's will often demands the courage to do a C-plus job because God bids us to spend our time and energy on other tasks. Think about that for a minute. Sometimes God just wants a C-plus job. He's aware of the Pareto principle or the 80-20 principle. You know, he would rather us do the C-plus job and move on because of all the time and effort and energy it would take to get to A-plus. He doesn't want that. C-plus is good enough. It's not perfection, but it is obeying his will. Sometimes he doesn't want a perfect job. That passage has been so helpful to so many people that I've shared it with. It's been helpful to me. Back to Father Jacques Philippe in the way of trust and love. The more we accept ourselves as we are and are reconciled to our own weakness, the more we can accept other people and love them as they are. Father Jacques Philippe. He says, if we accept ourselves as we are, we also accept God's love for us. But if we reject ourselves, if we despise ourselves, we shut ourselves off from the love God has for us. We deny that love. We close. He doesn't. So now this is me, right? We close the door to God's love for us. We don't let him love us. That's the great tragedy. That's what ultimately drives people to hell is not accepting the love of God. We have to allow him to love us first. Okay, so remember, you can call me 
As a listener of the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, you can call me any Tuesday or Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I've set that time aside for you. 317-567-9594. That's my cell phone number. 317-567-9594. You can email me at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. I love to be in touch with my listeners. Let me know what you think. Also, I want to tell you about the Resilient Catholics community at soulsandhearts.com. All right, soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. The RCC is short for Resilient Catholics Community. There is so much information at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. I want to invite you to consider joining the Resilient Catholics community. It's all about, that community is all about loving with your whole heart, with all of your being, with all of your parts. It's about that integration. There is a way to get there. Right? It's about getting over the natural level issues that hold you back from tolerating being loved, from tolerating receiving the love of God across all your parts. It's a human formation issue for so many of us. It's not actually primarily a spiritual issue. For so many people, it's about the foundation. It's about the foundation for the spiritual life. That's where the work needs to happen. And because grace perfects nature, it's got to have nature to work with, right? We're focusing on those human formation issues. And if you're really into this podcast, if these ways of conceptualizing the human person, if these, if there's a desire in you for this integration, for this human formation, if you're really desiring a deep, intimate, personal relationship with God and Mary, if you want a real human relationship with Jesus Christ, that close connection with him and his humanity and you and your humanity, if that's what you're looking for, that's what we're all about in the RCC, in the Resilient Catholics community. If you recognize that you've got natural level impediments to that deep relating, this is the other thing. This is the thing. And you, you got to be willing to make sacrifices, right? There's going to be sacrifices in time, effort, money, humility, courage. It takes that on this pilgrimage. This is not just a walk in the park. This is actually pretty demanding, right? I'm looking for more pioneers to be at the cutting edge in this adventure, on this pilgrimage. We really are the tip of the spear. We really are some of the first explorers of bringing these insights about human formation and grounding them in a Catholic anthropology. The RCC, the Resilient Catholics Community, that's my tribe. The RCC is my people. We're bringing together the faithful, orthodox, serious Catholics who are wounded and suffering and they know it. And secondly, the Catholics that are psychologically minded, or at least want to be more psychologically minded, who believe in the unconscious and who embrace this idea of the unity and the multiplicity of the human person. If you're willing to look at this through the lens of a core self and parts, if, you're, if this unity and multiplicity makes sense to you, like I was describing in my take on scrupulosity, you know, hey, this is for you. And it's not just for folks that are scrupulous. We have people that, are, that struggle with scrupulosity in the RCC, but it could be anything else too in a human formation thing, right? So what do you get? What do you? What, do we, what is it about? Well, we start out with a $99 non-refundable registration fee, and that gets you the initial measures kit. When we generate reports from that, those reports are usually five pages long. We'll talk about the hypothesized parts that we're seeing in your profile. And not only will we describe somewhere around 10 to 12 parts, but we'll talk about how those parts are likely to be interacting with you. I've got measures that can give me some insight into that. 
So you get that report and you get a 15-minute interview with me to go over the results of that and to talk about the RCC. There's a weekly... Then, if, you, if, you, if, if, if you're a good fit for the RCC, you want to do it and it looks good for you to join, then there's a $99 monthly subscription fee that gets you the weekly premium interconnections podcast that's just for RCC members. There's lots of experiential exercises with that. There's a complete course, 44 sessions long, for working through your human formation. That, that happens over the course of the year. Again, $99 per month. You get a company that you're with that's seven or eight other people that you'll be journeying with together, that you'll be meeting with weekly for 75 minutes. You also get your companion. This is a specific person that's in your company that you check in with every day. You also get office hours with me every month conversation hours with me. And if you can't afford the $99 a month, we always make it financially possible for everything that we offer at Souls and Hearts. We never turn anybody away because of a lack of capacity to pay. So if you're a good fit, you know, let us know if you have financial need that shouldn't hold you back. We have write-offs, we have scholarships. The fees are not the tail that wag the dog. So We'll also be doing some individual coaching there. Uh, that's a separate, there's a separate upcharge for that. But if you want some individual attention from our staff, we can do that. We're on this pilgrimage together and we're only open twice a year. We're only open during the month of December and the month of June. So we have just reopened the RCC. We have a limited number of slots. People have started signing up. It's so excited to see the names coming in. And I am really excited to be with those of you that really get that. I want to bring us together from all over the world. We've got people coming from all over the world into the RCC. It's not just the United States. It's not just Canada, but from all over the world. So it's exciting to be with all of you. If, you, if you've got questions about whether you're a good fit for the RCC, call me up during my, during my conversation hours, 317-567-9594. I want to talk with you about it. Email me crisis at soulsandhearts.com and sign up. If you think this is a good thing, sign up. You know, it's only $99 to do the, the initial measures kit. You'll find out a ton of stuff that doesn't obligate you to do the rest of it. So check that out, soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. Boy, this has been long. Thank you for being here with me. Um, and we'll close with an invocation to our patroness and our patron. Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us. Mm-hmm.